welcome to Faith Football Friends Podcast. I'm Forrest Animaceris. I'm Chris Elrod. And I'm Cole Parsley. And today joining us, we have Jeff Smith. Very exciting stuff. Jeff Smith comes to us from the Cooperstown Church of Christ in Springfield, Tennessee. He's in the last semester of getting his Master's of Divinity from Fried Hardeman University. He's got comps coming up soon. So thankfully, we were able to squeeze in this podcast episode right in the midst of arguably the most hectic time of his life. Jeff, thanks for doing that. And <laughs> uh, Yeah, of course. We're glad you're on. And Jeff's going to be talking to us about a book uh, called The Old Testament in Seven, Sen- Seven Sentences. That's a tongue twister. Uh, it's written by Christopher J.H. Wright, and it's published by InterVarsity Press. For disclosure, IVP did send us the book for free for an honest review, and we outsourced that to Jeff um, because he knows his stuff, and he's going to give us sort of a uh, – an overview of this book, you know, what what's the guy's argument, how does it change ministry, how does it change faith, if it does, good stuff like that. Um, so Jeff, obvious first question, I think, the title of the book is The Old Testament in Seven Sentences. What are the seven sentences uh, that Wright says kind of summarize the entirety of the Old Testament? Well, he begins in his uh, intro sort of uh, confessing that it was a challenge for him, you know, comparing himself to, you know, when you think about Jesus and the way he delineate, delineates it down to, you know, the two greatest commands, how it was a challenge for him to, to bring it down to seven sentences just because of, you know, you're going to leave things out. But he, he used seven verses in the Old Testament to unlock key themes, uh, key sections. And so he begins with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, 3, Exodus, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 2, and then David, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. This is 1 Samuel 13, 14. And then when he began to talk about the prophets, he chose Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? He talked about gospel, Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. And then Psalms and uh, wisdom literature, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23.1. And he used all of those as starting points to unlock major sections. Wow. So is, so he kind of deals with it almost like chronologically. I want to say like looking at highlights, but like these are the main things that stick out as we're going through the Old Testament sort of deal. Yeah, and it, it, to give a little bit of background, he, you know, this is a small book. Uh, it's the big subject, and he does a lot to condense it, but it's only about 150, 160 pages plus some discussion questions. Um, but he, you know, he's known. Christopher Wright is known for his uh, his work in Old Testament. He's written several commentaries, and he's written uh, the Mission of God, unlocking the Bible's grand narrative, which was a big um, book, and so. That he, he already has that background, and so I think he uses, you know, what he's already written as a starting point to, to try to do this work, um, delineating down to 150 pages. <clears throat> okay, cool. So, kind of by way of summary, like, what are some major things as you worked through the book that really stuck out? Maybe like some take-home points, or just some, you know, some overarching things that that stick out in uh, seven sentences, the Old Testament. Well, I, I think his uh, 
his purpose is to demonstrate that the Bible as a whole, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, it's all a grand story. And you see that even in the very beginning. That mm. it's, a, it's a story. There's a narrative. There's a grand uh, meta-narrative going on behind the, uh, the scenes. And uh, with that as a foundation, he's able to go into each of these themes and to unlock how they function within the Bible as a whole. And so one of my greatest takeaways is just to, you know, as you read through this book, um, it, it forces you to see the Bible as a story, um, as a story where God creates and God recreates. And so I think that's I think that's important for Bible students, you know, to be able to 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 see uh, not only the story, but to see the God of the story and to see how they function within it. Yeah, that's great. I think sometimes there's this temptation to view the Bible almost like a textbook, mm -hmm. or just like, you know, uh, some kind of reference book. You know, I'm going through something. Oh, where's that at? You know, or I'm in this debate over here. Oh, where's that at? What's that verse? You know, instead of just looking at the big picture. So it's cool that uh, this book kind of helps us do that in the Old Testament, you know, nonetheless, which may be um, a more overlooked area of the Bible for Christians, which we'll talk about later, uh, I hope. Um, so unless anybody has anything before we like kind of launch into it, um, just kind of walk us through it. Like, you know, what are, what are his big turning points, like from beginning to end? What's his main, uh, what he's saying? Well, so in the beginning, in the first chapter, talking about creation, he, um, he says, you know, our first word translated in the beginning reminds us that the Bible as a whole is a story, or rather the story, the true story of uh, the universe. And so what he argues, um, when, you under, when you read Genesis, when you read the creation accounts, um, it, it forces you to, to uh, it provides a Christian worldview, is the way he phrases it. And uh, this, the worldview asks the, the key questions, where are we, who are we, what's gone wrong, and what's the solution and um the creation narrative helps uh answer those questions you know where are we well we're in a in a created world and this creation is good and this creation is distinct and dependent on god we are created uh, functionally to live in this creation we have a responsibility to to rule to subdue to steward you know over this creation um he he describes you know humanity as the as the image of God, to exercise delegated kingship of God within creation. And I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, questions we could ask about what that means to be, you know, created in the image versus as an image. But, you know, the whole point is that we're created to functionally exist within this created world as stewards. Um, what's gone wrong? Well, sin. You see that in the very, in Genesis 3, sin affects the human individual, it affects human society, human history, and even affects the earth. It affects creation. And then the, what is the solution? Uh, he writes, uh, it is important to see that the Bible portrays this whole problem not by asking the question, how can we all get to heaven when we die? Our texts do not talk about the need for us to go somewhere else to be with God and how we can do that since we are so sinful. Since we are so sinful, uh, the problem is how can the holy and loving creator God once again dwell in harmony with the humans he created in his own image in the midst of the earth that is now subject to God's curse, which is just uh, a really uh, 
compact way to say that, you know, when you read cre the creation account, when you begin the story, uh, you see, you learn not only, you know, who we are and whose we are and who God is, but you see, you know, when the problems start arising because of sin in Genesis 3, uh, you see that, you know, God's on a mission. And that's what he describes in his other books, like The Mission of God. He, he describes it as a missional hermeneutic. And the point, what he means by that is when you read the scriptures as, you know, with the lens that God is up to something, that he is trying to fix on our behalf what we messed up, it really helps you to, to unlock some of the important truths of scripture. And that's why he spends a lot of time in this first verse. You know, creation is not just something, you know, it's not filled with just a bunch of factoids, you know, it's not just something to be interested in, but it really grounds you in a Christian worldview. And so that's where he begins. When, uh, when Wright begins chapter two uh, with Abraham, it's, it flows out of the groundwork he's already laid in chapter one with creation that, that Abraham is the beginning of the solution to the problem, uh, that Abraham is a man chosen, and that through Abraham, he gives him three promises. He promises a nation, um, that God's mission will be accomplished through a community. He promises a blessing, you know, all the families on earth uh, will be blessed, and he promises, you know, land. Um, and then he writes that the universal goal is, uh, quote, God is promising to make one great nation out of Abraham's descendants, but his ultimate purpose is to bring blessing to all nations on earth. Abraham is, is what he calls the beginning of the gospel. And so uh, it, it's, it's amazing. He's a really good writer because he only, he only spends a few pages on each of these chapters, but he's able to put a lot into uh, a little space. But I just think it's powerful to view creation as something that, you know, it, it's a worldview and it teaches you not only who God is, but what he is doing. And as you continue in Genesis 12, you see that he begins with a man named Abraham. So I would love your, you know, what your reflections before I continue to summarize on anything that I've already said. Yeah, I think it's really cool looking at Abraham as sort of the solution to some of the problems that pop up in Genesis 1 through 11. Um, because, I mean, that's exact. I mean, you know, all these promises coming through him, you know, uh, kind of restoring God's original intent in the creation, I think is really cool way to think about it. And especially that quote you said about Abraham sort of as the beginning of the gospel, you know, and God working toward this, uh, this plan to unite all things to himself, I think is pretty, um, pretty awesome the way that, cause I think, you know, Abraham sometimes just kind of gets regulated to just like VBS type stuff, you know, and, it's never like, wait a second, this is like a key moment in the history of the universe. You know, it's 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 a big deal. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's it brings continuity between the testaments because um, I think and one thing he tries to address is that it's easy for us to view ah, that's Old Testament. That's past. That's history. We're in new covenant without realizing that, you know, this is all part of one story you know, and that viewing Abraham as the beginning of the gospel allows you to view scripture as a whole as a narrative. And that's important. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, then he continues uh, with 
Exodus, um, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And it's it's kind of interesting. It's fun to see him, you know, use a lot of these verses as sort of just a starting point uh, to, to discuss a lot. And he even says, hey, before we get into this, let's, you know, how do we get here? But he uh, describes uh, this sentence um, that as a summary of what God has already done as he begins into the, the Decalogue, the Ten uh, Commandments. So in Exodus uh, chapter 20, before he gives any of the commands, he says, hey, here's where we are, here's where we've been. And I think that's important to note, you know, when you're viewing the Old Testament, when you're viewing the Ten Commandments, that it's not just to, you know, hear the commands. It's to know these commands exist within what God is doing. And that's how he begins that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of uh, slavery. He says, it is the story of redemption in the Old Testament which shapes Israel's concept of God as redeemer and provides believers in both Old and New Testaments with their template for what redemption uh, means. And so he just uses that as a way to talk about redemption. He remembered his covenant with Abraham. He had compassion on their suffering. and But even more than that, he redeemed Israel because God has a mission uh, for the whole world. And he and I made sure to include this. He said, redemption leads to responsibility. Redemption leads to responsibility. And I think that's fascinating because, you know, he doesn't he, he doesn't just redeem us in order and for us just to twiddle our thumbs until we die. You know, he redeems us to include us in part of uh, his mission. And I, it makes me think of Paul in Second Corinthians, was it five? He says, you know, we have been reconciled and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You know, you've been saved to save. And I think that's important to understand that when you are redeemed, you are become part of uh, his mission. But he uses that space to lead into just sort of summary about the Torah, about the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, Leviticus, you know, Deuteronomy's collection, things like that. And so he, he'd make sure to this is a great intro book, and that's what it says, you know, a small introduction to a vast topic. So he makes sure to use use these chapters as a way to talk about the rest of that um, section of Scripture. And that's why I think it's a good book to pick up if you're just trying to get an overall uh, picture of what the Old Testament's about. But, yeah, that's that's his third sentence. I am Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of uh, slavery. What I really enjoy about um, everything you're saying and what I think this book is laying out is just how God is, even though humanity is messed up, he continues throughout the narrative to pursue humanity, to pursue me, to pursue you. Uh, I think that's pretty, pretty amazing because he could have just left us how we were in a fallen state. Yeah, I heard someone say once uh, that we're all part of a story, but we're not the main character. And I think that's. You know, this is a story about God and what he's up to, and um, and what he's up to is redeeming us. And so in a sense, it is about us, but it's it's only about us because it's about God. And uh, I think that's a pretty big deal. And I think you see that. Not, it's, that's just not, it's not just New Testament stuff. That's, that's the whole Bible. That begins in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, I really liked your uh, point. Um about how the redemption leads to responsibility, how that carries over into the New Testament. Because I think we could talk about several different New Testament uh, verses where uh, that 
that idea is is seen. So I think that's a, a great point. Now this next one uh, in First Samuel 13, I think is the one where, like when you first said it, it was the one that, um, it was the one that kind of stuck out to me as like, what is that doing there, kind of. Mm-hmm. But then the more I thought about it, and I thought about the promise of the Davidic kingdom and like the turning point of monarchy in Israel's history, like it really like just in my own head, but started getting bigger and bigger. You know what I mean? So this is the one I'm kind of most excited about just because I want to see where this is going exactly. And yeah, it's First Samuel 13:14, right? That's right. Yeah, First Samuel 13:14. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart. And appointed him ruler of his uh, of his people, and it is yeah I thought the same thing, um, but I think it is a appropriate place to go. And the reason he does is he bases it off of uh, Paul's example in, in Acts chapter thirteen. He gives a he gives a summary of of uh, you know the story in about six seven verses, um, and he includes this verse in it. He says I'm flipping over there to Acts chapter uh, uh, thirteen. In verses 17 through um, 23, he says, uh, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then he, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. He's just, you know, walking through the story. And then he says, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, quote, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all uh, my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so... Paul goes from Moses to Jesus in like seven sentences, seven sentences and um, seven verses. And a key part of that is David, because, you know, um, Jesus is the king that comes from that line. You know, Jesus is it's through David that that Jesus is able to fulfill the promise from Moses to Abraham. He's he's a link um, within that. And so, yeah, it's it is uh, it's pretty fascinating. He he spends a good bit talking about what it means to be a man after God's own heart, that that's not just something, it's not about just, you know, emotions, you know, feeling the same way, but, you know, the Hebrew, in Hebrew, the heart is what he says, is not so much the center of emotions and feelings, it's the seat of the will and uh, decisions. And so he's aligned with the purpose of God. And so therefore that fits within uh, what God is doing in the story, that he found a man who's willing to do what God needs him to do. Um, but he uses this chapter to, you know, unpack all kinds of things about the tabernacle as God's dwelling place. So he, he sort of says, okay, let me, let me back up real quick, you know? And so he does back up and go from um, Moses to the wilderness, to the land of Canaan, to the tribes and judges from Samuel, Saul, David, and Solomon, you know, all the way to, to David. So, you know, he admits that he's sort of using these as, um, just ways to unlock greater sections, um, but that, but that's something important about that person, David. That he is the, he is the transition. That covenant is the transition between uh, Moses and Jesus, 
But then he, at the end of the chapter, talks about just the problems and failures that come through David's line and how those failures, his, the failures of his sons, um, it point, they point to someone greater than David, and that's uh, Jesus. So, yeah, it's, it, was a, it was a fascinating chapter to me just because it's, I mean, that's, he uses that as that transition point before he goes into talking about um, the prophets. What's been interesting about this to me is whenever I first looked at the list or the seven sentences, um, I kind of I kind of thought to myself, okay, these are kind of like seven of the most popular Bible verses from the Old Testament, um, you know. And I, w- I was kind of curious to know about the uh, the depth of the book based upon that. But it's been neat to see that the popularity of these verses kind of speaks to the depth and the importance that that they play throughout the entire redemption story. Yeah, and I think he's he had a tall task when he was assigned this this book because if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me for it. I think this has been a template. I think they have one for the New Testament and they have maybe some other ones. Um, so he was yeah. assigned this <laughs> this this task of hey, tell the whole story in seven sentences. Um, and so he he tries his best to even though it's only 150 pages, 160 pages to, to use, yeah, those key verses, but just to, not just to, you know, unlock, uh, disconnected themes, but to demonstrate how those themes fit within a meta narrative, which is what he's been all about all along in his other books. What would you say are the, the implications for a Christian who, doesn't recognize maybe or doesn't know the meta narrative. Um, so in other words, what are what would you say to someone who thinks we live under the new covenant? So I'm just going to read the New Testament. Um, the Old Testament's there. I understand that, but I'm not that interested in it. Uh, what are the implications? Would you say? And and Jeff, it's likely that some of our listeners may not be familiar with the word meta narrative. So maybe elaborate some on that word as well. Yeah, uh, meta narrative. Just the you know the grand story the grand um narrative of what's going on from creation to new creation um that there's the the thesis being that there's a story behind all of this and if that is true then i don't know how how well we can understand jesus understand the the promises that he's fulfilling without understanding the story i mean i think about what is it, John 5, when Pharisee, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that there's life in them, but don't you know that they're testifying about me? And so I think that's very important for us to, you know, nail down that I don't know how, you know, I, I believe, let, let me say this, I believe God can do a lot with a little. And so I believe God, um, I believe God can do, save with very little, you know, I I'm not trying to diminish that. I don't think you need to know Greek and Hebrew to go to heaven or anything like that. But if we're going to be serious about God, we're going to be serious about faith. I think we need to see what he's been up to. Um, and that requires starting in Genesis, not Matthew. Right. Um, for me, it's it's very uplifting when I read Genesis and I recognize that that Adam was created with a purpose, you know, subdue the earth, Adam and Eve. And then 
you you go throughout the rest of humanity and humanity isn't just like uh william lane craig says we're not just god's pets yeah um, our, our purpose isn't just to be happy no we have a deeper meaning and a, a deep, deeper uh purpose in life than just being happy and i think the the narrative shows that yeah and i was just gonna say i think there was an article recently i think it was on christianity today i'll post a link in the show notes um and I forgot the exact title. It was something like, we need to read the Bible Jesus read or something like that. And it was all about how Christians need to be familiar with the Old Testament. And sometimes we forget that, you know, how vital the Old Testament was, not just for Jesus, obviously, but for the early church, you know, because that's really all they had for uh, for a long while, other than, of course, you know, the, the working of the Holy Spirit and their communities and whatnot. But... Um, yeah, if we miss out on the Old Testament, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. And I think we're just seeing, I mean, we're halfway through this list, kind of missing out on the richness and the depth of everything God has been doing since the beginning. And something that really popped out to me when you were talking about David was I never really tied together the failure of his descendants with how that would show there's still a need for somebody else. Like, mm-hmm. it's like even in when things are going not how they should it's still like a red alert to hey look something better is coming right and of course you know that's in jesus and what he's going to bring um so i think yeah i think that that, that's awesome and we and i wanted to save this question till later but i'll ask you now jeff um and maybe you didn't have to correct anything you know that's granted that to the side has this book maybe encouraged you to because all of us here, we're all ministers and, you know, we have hearts for ministry. Has it encouraged you to um, not necessarily look at the Old Testament differently, but remind you just as a minister of how the people in your congregation need to be exposed to the Old Testament and kind of magnify, you know, in the ministry of preaching the word, like, hey, look, uh, we need to be dipping into the Old Testament quite a, quite a bit. Yeah, I mean— to, to oversimplify it, I would say if God breathed it, I need to read it, you know, um, if for nothing else. But, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, just the fact that, I mean, if Jesus is the fulfillment of these things, um, then I need to know what he's fulfilling. Um, like I said in, in the chapter one, you know, if, if, if creation, if the creation account um, develops a, a worldview of who God is and who we are, then it'll demonstrate to us as we start there and read through the Old Testament, just how to live functionally within God's program, you know, how to live as a Christian, that uh, that it's more than just moral piety. It's about a mission to seek and save the lost. It's a mission to, to reconcile. And yeah, I mean, I believe we you know, everything begins and ends with Jesus. Um, but I think viewing Jesus um, from the beginning, sort of like John did, you know, uh, helps us to to understand that that God is up to something bigger than maybe we have thought before. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, because to some degree, and, and this is something the author said in an interview that Forrest sent us a little earlier. I'm sure he can share with our audience in the show notes, but uh, he talks about how whenever we don't 
uh, whenever we don't look at the Old Testament, we miss so much about who God is. And so whenever we get to the New Testament and we're introduced to Jesus and we think about him as God, we kind of we're missing some of his character that's been revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, and if we're not careful, we can then shape Jesus into our own image and kind of we can kind of make him the savior we want rather than the savior that he is. Um, and I just thought that was a really uh, great point and uh, seems like a really great thing that this book does. It shows that often we think of what what did God do to try and save humanity, and, and we go straight to Jesus. God's been working on this ever since the beginning. Like, he's been planning this ever since the beginning. So I think the narrative shows that. But I'm also—this this thought just occurred to me, and that's the aspect of our mission. Uh, we're reconciled, so we want to reconcile others, is the very mission of God and how he's pursuing us even though he doesn't have to. So— also, Jeffrey, can I quote you on the "If God breathed it, I need to read it"? Is, is that from you? <laughs> you can. I'm sure. Okay. I'm sure I've heard it somewhere, but I don't know who. So, <laughs> whatever. Appreciate. Yeah, it. that's definitely going on our Facebook page later. Follow-up question: Is it okay if Cole calls you Jeffrey? Sure, if you want. I mean, normally it's just my wife, but okay. Wife and Cole. <laughs> did, did I call you Jeffrey? Yeah, that's oh, fine. Okay. My mom right. calls me Jeffrey, and my wife calls me Jeffrey, so now it's, right. now it's Cole, too. Now it's Cole, Cole, you're on a, a very exclusive list in yep. Jeff's life. That's pretty nice, man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving on to Micah 6, 8. And this is, of these verses, maybe with the exclusion of Psalm 23, 1, this is maybe the most popular one. And so correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but this is essentially, you know, part of, of Wright's thesis. Micah 6, 8 is essentially... Uh, like a summary statement almost for the prophets, right? Yeah, it's it's a summary of not just the prophets, but I mean, he looks to Jesus and he says, you know, Jesus summarizes what God wants from us by saying, love God, love neighbor. And that the point of summarizing what God expects of us is to draw us into deeper commitment to God. So that's what Micah does in Micah 6, 8, but that's what the prophets do is by calling us, you know, recalling us to, to greater commitment, you know. So he, um, he says the point of these powerful summaries is to remind us that being in a right relationship with God, it's not just a matter of checkbox compliance with all the instructions and regulations. It is a matter of fundamental commitment to God himself, expressed through love and humble submission to God, parentheses, in vertical relationship, and acting with justice and compassion in human affairs, parentheses, horizontal um, relationship. And so the prophets function as God's mouthpiece to call um, and recall his people to greater commitment um, through a variety of, of ways, through persuasion, through poetry, through word pictures, words and actions. And so he goes through in this chapter talking about he breaks it up into centuries so ninth ninth century eighth century seventh century uh prophets but the whole point is that they all have this wider message of one you know yahweh the god of israel is in sovereign control of world history which is really important if you're in the middle of an exile um or you've come back and it's not like it used to be number two god demands justice and politics matter 
to God, that a vertical relationship with God has to overflow in a horizontal relationship with the people around you, that it has to affect the way you treat people. And you see that in the prophets. You see that in Amos, where they're just they're going and they're offering these sacrifices and they're just completely ignoring the needs of the people around them. And I think that preaches today. Um, that sounds New Testament to me. And then number three, outward religion without ethical transformation is abominable uh, to God. And so the prophets, they intensely call people back to covenant and they anticipate both um, judgment and they anticipate hope at the same time. So Micah 6, 8, you know, it's, it's something that could fit. It's, it's, not, it's a great bumper sticker, you know, um, but the whole point of it is Micah is summarizing just not only what God expects, but that, that God expects something from us. He expects what he's done as the God of the Exodus. He expects that uh, to be transformative for us. Yeah, and it's still, you know, in a way it points to Jesus for sure. Like, you, you know, you touched on that. But I was just thinking when you're talking about the horizontal and the vertical, Jesus really transforms both of those relationships. Because not only are we reconciled to God through him, but also um, it radically changes how we treat each other, how we treat our enemies, how we treat our friends, how we, you know, everybody. Um, and Jesus obviously is the ultimate like fulfillment of that, the ultimate like concentrated, you know, uh, manifestation of that. But that's something God's been concerned about for a while. Um, and sometimes we forget, like, I think one of the most tempting things is to have this sort of, you know, um, slavish devotion to rules without really being transformed, having a transformed heart. That is tempting to me. And also this idea of compartmentalizing my relationship with God in such a way that it doesn't impact how I treat other people, doesn't impact how I view the world, doesn't impact um, whether it's my politics or whatever else. I'm just out there. Everything else is different. And then, oh, yeah, I go worship God on Sundays. Um, and there's a good reminder that, you know, that's that's not how it should be. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about the fact that we're in the middle of an election year, you know, and and uh, November is coming around soon, and if you just get on Facebook, you realize how many people are in unrest and angry, and um, and so to say that politics matter to God could very well be um, disturbing to some hearers, you know, because um, we think, well, we belong to a different kingdom. This kingdom's not of this world, and so we have sort of this escapist mentality that, well. The mission is to live as, you know, as holy as I can until I can, you know, escape somewhere beyond the azure blue. Uh, but I think the whole point of what Jesus does is to um, to include us into a part of God's mission and that affects people. And so it's it's beautiful to see it when you open up the prophets that what Jesus is teaching is not it's not new. He's all God's always expected for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. I mean, that's a quote from Leviticus. So he's always expected that, but he's just the only one who could do it. Um, he he's he serves as the as the second Adam. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's beautiful to see that God is consistent between the testaments that he has always, you know, 
wants us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. Um, and then he demonstrates that himself in in flesh. Very good. Um, yeah, no, that's awesome to think about. So this next one, Isaiah 52, 7, I think I've got it written out correctly. All right, so the next one is Isaiah 52, 7, and this is this inclusion of this idea of gospel. Um And sometimes I know Christians, when they interact with the Old Testament, sometimes are accused of being too, uh, you know, Christocentric. And maybe that is a criticism some have levied against right. I'm not sure, honestly. Uh, But this inclusion of this idea of gospel um, from Isaiah 52.7 is really interesting to me. And as a Christian, maybe maybe you guys agree, and Jeff, as you're reading this, um, because we know what we know about the New Testament, it feels like we've been talking about the gospel this entire time, (laughs) you know. Um, but then I guess here it's kind of in a more concentrated form, right? Yeah, in a way. I mean, we already said Abraham's the beginning of the gospel, you know, so I don't know. I'd rather err on the side of being too Christocentric um, because I think Jesus was in John 5. They all point to me. Um, but, yeah, he. when I was first opening this book and I was reading the table of contents, this is the one that stuck out to me, like, wait, what, you know? I know you're really desperate to get to, uh, you know, to to this section, to, you know, to Isaiah and things like that. But um, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm all about that. Um, you know, this whole chapter, it's focused on the anticipation of the gospel in the Old Testament prophets. And he says that this provides the scriptural roots of the mission of the church to the nations. I think that's pretty, pretty fascinating, you know. Jesus comes on the scene and he starts talking about kingdom. He starts talking about, you know, God being up to something in the world. Well, this isn't out of nowhere. He uh, he uses chapter. He summarizes, you know, he talks about the exile, he talks about the reaction of the people. He talks about future hope. He really spends a lot of time in Ezekiel and Isaiah and in Jeremiah. And I think part of the, I think he addresses you know, sort of the question marks that may come up with viewing this as gospel by talking about three horizons um, that what these writers are speaking to can land. Three three horizons these places can land. Horizon one, two, and three. And that is, you know, the Old Testament era, the New Testament area, and then the the eschaton, the new creation is what he calls it. And so um, he says, you know, I'm beginning the middle of the sentence, but he says that is to say, uh, as the prophets launch their words into the future, we can see three places where their words land, three places where their words are relevant and fulfilled or still will be. And so Horizon 1, the Old Testament era, you have the prophets of their own time. He talks about whether the prophets are anticipating exile or in the middle of exile and, and anticipating a return from exile. Some of those, uh, some of that good news, some of that gospel that they're proclaiming is fulfilled in that um, return from exile. Um, but then you have Horizon 2, where you have sometimes their, their, their good news, their gospel lands in the New Testament, you know, Jeremiah 31, 31, and following the, the new covenant that he anticipates, that that comes um, through Jesus. But then you have several passages in Horizon 3 talking about this new creation, this this sort of uh, uh, end times, you know, Isaiah 65, 17 and following, when he talks about, you know, he, he just describes a, a new world 
uh, that's that's pacified, that is um, that is good. And I think part of the challenge is there's not always consensus on which one is which. You know, um, that's part of where the, the the debate comes with new creation is you know okay is he is this all horizon one is he all talking about you know when he's talking about you know um this this isaiah 65 17 and following the new heavens new earth is that just referring to the return from exile or is it returning is it referring to you know the end times like uh peter and, and john seem to to use it as but but i think the whole point is that you know from the prophet's vantage point He's just anticipating good news, and he just sort of sees it from one angle. And we, in retrospect, see it land in multiple spots. It lands, you know, and it's fulfilled in return from exile. It's fulfilled in Jesus, and it's also anticipating something in the future. Um, I, I included this just because that might be confusing, and I think he just he's a he, he writes it better than I can say. But he says uh, there are some passages in the prophets that seem to include all three horizons. And this may feel confusing at first, but remember that the prophets are looking into a future that, as far as they can see, is all uh, one single vision. They do not, could not know that it will be centuries before horizon two comes along and unknown centuries further before horizon three will come and still lies ahead. We, with our perspective, and now see that their words have stretched out over a vast period of time. They saw things from the front and saw things near and far as they were all part of one big single uh, picture. And so, yeah, it was it was a it was a very interesting chapter because as Christians, we think of gospel and we we rush straight to you know just the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know as accounts of the gospel um but i think you when you begin to see jesus as being the key uh the the person who fulfills the promises of god as we've been reading all along you see that that um that the prophets you know the gospel it can be good news in their immediate time it can be um good news in um in the, the life of Jesus, or it can be good news in, in the eschaton, but it's ultimately um, Jesus that all of that comes through. That's a great point, and I think your discussion of, or, you know, Wright's discussion of this idea of the three horizons is really helpful because not only is that something I've kind of struggled with myself, but I've been in conversations with people who sometimes make it seem like it can only be one, mm -hmm. right? So either Isaiah is referring to exile or referring to New Testament or referring to the end of the world, but it cannot be multiple of the above. Um, and there are some situations, you know, I know people who apply that consistently to all prophecy. And then, you, you know, you're really, and I'm not trying to bash anybody, like if that's what you believe, you know, um, the thing is, though, like you you run into a lot of problems um, across the boards. And that's that's a, for me, like, honestly, that's a helpful way of kind of showing like, look, there's these three horizons. The prophet just sees this one vision. But as you know, history and God as a master of history unfolds, you see how this is falling into place. Um, so that's really helpful. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, you see the New Testament writers. Uh, do that all the time. You know, we often call it double fulfillment. You right. Know, something 
is fulfilled immediately and fulfilled later, you know. Um, and I think it's okay to live in that tension. And we may not fully understand, you know, what's what, but even even if we consider <clears throat> our own Christian lives, um, there, it's it's a paradox, you know. There's there are blessings that we are promised to receive at the end that we can already appreciate partially. You know, we are saved. We will be saved. And so, you know, if you've had, uh, if you guys have had Dr. Burleson, you know, he'll he'll call it. Um, well, it's not original to him, but inaugurated eschatology, which is just a fancy way of saying already, not yet. You know, we you're benefiting it, benefiting benefiting from it now, and you will ultimately realize it um, in the future. And that there's a there's a tension there, and that you know maybe that's a parallel to to what these prophets are anticipating that you know uh and and maybe that was a bad analogy i don't know but the point is that the prophets you know they they have horizon one where things can be fulfilled in part um in their return from exile but then they come back and it's not really great you know you read ezra you read nehemiah you read the you know and you if you do any study in the intertestamental period you say is this really what isaiah 65 is talking about and then Jesus comes on the scene and then continues the mission. And so um, I think you're right to, to concede that, yeah, there's some are obviously Horizon 1, some are obviously Horizon 2, but sometimes it's both. Um, and that's that's part of it. I, I thought of uh, 1 Corinthians 15.2 uh, whenever you were talking about the not yet and uh, not yet and... I don't remember how you said it, but I know already, already not yet. Yeah, already not yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, uh, it says and by which you are being saved. And just like the fact that that's a continual thing and it's not fully realized is so, uh, so neat to me. Um, and I love I love thinking about how um, God's not done. You know, he's going to continue to work on us. He's going to continue to uh, bless our lives and stuff. I just I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Cole, are you okay? Okay. I think he's prostrate in the garden. Yeah, I'm good. Okay. No, you're fine. Um, All right, so gospel. Really cool stuff. Uh, Moving on to Psalm 23.1. And remind remind us what what this section is called again. Psalms and wisdom, I believe. Psalms and wisdom. Okay. That's what I wrote down. Let me look. Yeah, Psalms and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this idea of the Lord being our shepherd. Um, yeah, so tell us about that. Unpack unpack that for us a little bit. Well, he, he uses this psalm, and like someone said before, you know, this is one of the most popular verses in all the Bible. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, and he, he uses this psalm to, you know, unlock the whole Psalter, the whole book of Psalms, you know, um, and to... He, I mean, then leads into talk, talking about the nature of it and the nature of poetry. He describes, you know, parallelism, repeating parallelism, contrasting, contrasting parallelism, supplementing, you know, that uh, type of uh, and the mechanics of of what's happening in that type of Hebrew uh, poetry, which is important to understand if you want to understand some of the, you know, what they're trying to say. Um, but just describing metaphors, the emotion. He spends a lot of time talking about the variety of the psalms, which I think is very important. 
um, you know, the Psalms are transformative. Uh, they're not, you don't just read them for information, you read them for transformation. And, um, and I think you see that in the variety of Psalms. I mean, the, the majority of the Psalms are lament Psalms, you know, lament where they're just crying out to God. Some of them even being imprecatory Psalms when they're wishing violence on their enemies. And, you know, that's not, that doesn't sound a lot like the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, you know, but you know, they have the lament Psalms, they have Thanksgiving praise, protest, you know, those, those types of things. That's important to understand if you're going to read the book of Psalms for transformation, because, you know, we are created with emotions. Um, that's part of how God created us. And I think we need to transform in all of those ways that um, if we are upset, we tell God about that. You know, if we're angry, we tell, uh, tell God about that. And we do that reverently, but reverence doesn't mean omitting the way I actually feel. Um, and I mean, David sure didn't, you know, David sure didn't. And that's part of what it means to be a sheep that follows the shepherd. I mean, that's part of what it means to trust is to pray in that way. And that's very transformative to me. It changes the way I view God. And, you know, God can handle whatever I'm feeling. He created me, so he certainly can handle that. Um, he says, uh, worship that regularly draws on the resources of the Psalms does at least three things. It generates and strengthens faith, number one. It challenges us in how we live in the world, number two. And then it inspires us uh, with hope. And even most, most, not all, but most of those lament Psalms end with a glimmer of hope. I think about Psalm 22, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me that on the lips of Jesus? But by the end of that psalm, it's it's ending in ending in hope that even though this is how I feel, um, I trust in your promises. But then he, you know, he uses this section to also talk about the wisdom literature, you know, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, things like that. Talks about, you know, how Proverbs describes wisdom and then Ecclesiastes and Job gives us permission to both protest and and question and so yeah he he like he has been with each chapter he used this chapter to unlock um this whole beautiful and important section of scripture which is is it's important to have to to value these books because they aren't necessarily part of the story but they shape us to live in the story. Because if God is up to something, if God is the good shepherd and we are his sheep and we are following him somewhere, then he's giving us the tools in, these, in this wisdom literature to live rightly, to live Christianly, and to empower us to trust. And so that makes this whole chapter very important. Well, and it's sort of like, yeah, they, they're not really telling us a story. But they are like people who are part of the story talking to God and um, kind of ex expressing their experience of operating with God, if that makes sense. You know, and, and so I think it definitely kind of adds to the story, kind of some commentary to the story, maybe even. Yeah, I feel the Psalms, they they present a truth not in information so much as you mentioned, but in in an emotional appeal in a, in a way that you you find the truth 
in a deeper way. And the example I want to give is I believe it was like one like Psalm 40 maybe. Uh, yesterday I was reading in Bible class and David was talking about the shame he feels, the shame he feels because of his sin. And it's like, oh, wait, I can relate to that. The reader can relate to the fact that they feel shame when they sin towards God. Yeah, it's almost as if, and Jeff, you touched on this with some of what Wright said, it's almost as if, you know, this literature is equipping us to be a part of the story um, and just giving us some of those tools to live um, live in a God-glorifying way. Yeah, I, uh, I wasn't planning on, I, this came to, came to my head just now. I wrote a paper for one of my classes in Psalms and Wisdom Literature with Dr. Rogers which is a great class, really, really good. And um, and I wrote the paper. It wasn't very long. I, I think it was only five or six pages. I don't have it in front of me, but it was basically, I don't know what I titled it, but it was just what in the world do we do with the imprecatory psalms, you know, those really violent ones that wish, you know, where the author wishes for the, the babies of their enemies to be dashed against the rock. You know, that doesn't sound, you know, like something I should be praying and so really trying to wrestle with it because people have wrestled with it for years and say, okay, what do we do with this? Do we, you have some Bibles where those are edited out, you know, I mean, we just don't, we don't read them, you know, or in, in other faith traditions and higher, higher, you know, high church um, traditions with their, um, with lectionaries, whatever they may just not include, you know, those type of stuff. But I'm thinking they're in the Bible. They're there. They're there for our transformation. And it was a, it was a really, um, a good study for me because, um, and I'm going to butcher what he said, but I included a quote from Walter Brueggemann, who is, um, he writes a lot on the Psalms and he just talks about how, you know, cause the question for me was how do I, on the one hand, read these Psalms and on the other hand, see this nonviolent, nonviolent standard of Jesus, you know, to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek, to, to pray for your enemies and those type of things. And, you know, how do I have one in one hand and one in the other? How do, how do I marry those two things? And um, and the way he just sort of said it, um, and it was at least helpful for me, is that um, if the Psalms are, are to be used to transform me, to empower me to to trust God and to be part of his mission and to, to be a sheep, that um, I can't I can't work my way around emotions. I have to work my way through them that the only way I can achieve that standard of Jesus is by working through that anger that I have. And the best way to do that is to hand it over to God. Because by me putting what I feel should be done in the hands of a God who says vengeance is mine, um, that I'm gonna, I'm the one, of, I will provide justice, whether it's now or later, um, that relieves me of that burden to to act violently against my neighbor. And that was just a fascinating way to think about it, you know, and it doesn't mean I'm super comfortable reading those Psalms now, but the point is that that whole section of the Bible is there to empower me to live Christianly, to live um, and grow more into the image of Christ who read those Psalms as well. Um, So that's just sort of a, a side thing. I just think, um, it, that was a moment in my life where it really taught me, hey, this, the Psalms matter, you know, even the ones that are uncomfortable because they're for transformation. I think this is an example where you really got to know um, 
the genre you're reading in the Bible, it's not all uh, necessarily law. It's not all necessarily information, but the Psalms are emotional. And if you come to Psalms and the verse you just mentioned with an outlook uh, that I just mentioned before, like, oh, this is law, then you may read that and think, okay, this is what I need to be praying for. And I think we would agree that's not the case. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I appreciate you bringing up those imprecatory Psalms because that's something I've always really struggled with. I uh, never did get to take that class with Dr. Rogers. Um, maybe still in my future. I'm not sure. Waiting on an email. Anyway, um, I really thought, no, when you were saying that, it made me think of something my wife says a lot. My wife is going to school to be a mental health counselor. And um, so she's always like psychoanalyzing me, you know. And one thing she says a lot, not just to me, thankfully, is it's okay to feel, which sounds like such a, like, like, well, yeah, I know that, but you kind of brought this up, you know, when we feel those emotions, a lot of time in that moment, we feel bad because we're like, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I shouldn't be feeling this way. Um, and instead of like actually dealing with it, we just run away from it. Um, and maybe the Psalms, you know, with some of the stuff you were saying, kind of, it reinforces that like, Hey, it's okay to feel like, uh, you know, because of what's going on and because of how you're made. And I think it's a good reminder, um, you know, just that it's okay to feel. But, I, you know, I've never really put those two things together with the imprecatory psalms and, and that, uh, that thing my wife says. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think that's especially difficult, at least for me, as a man, as an American man. Um, I was raised... You know, there's no crying in baseball. There's no from early on eight from an early age. Totally, hey, you don't feel. You just man up and suck it up. You know, and I, that's done a lot of damage to me. Um, really worked through some of those things in counseling. Um, I remember uh, 18 years old, when a close friend of mine got brain cancer. He eventually passed away, and um, I remember praying at that time at the beginning, very very. Uh, adamantly and just this is what I want and then it didn't come through and then so there was a lot of why God did you let this happen but that eventually sort of desensitized me to prayer and uh, it got to the point where I would say um, I would add when I would say not my will but your will be done it wasn't like Jesus it was more of just a, a scapegoat for my doubt you know, well, this is what I want, but God, you're going to do what you want to do anyway. And I think um, when James is talking about praying with with doubt, it's not doubt that God exists. It's that that doubt that God cares, you know, that God is listening. And so, you know, to pray like Jesus is to say, on the one hand, this is how I really, really, really feel. Um, but on the other hand, I'm going to I want you to empower me to align my will with yours and to really want what you want, you know, and you're not going to have all the answers. I still don't know why, why he died. Um, I've seen God do a lot of good things from it, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's important, you know, when we pray to pray honestly, because I mean, who are we fooling? No, God knows. He knows his sheep. He knows his sheep better than we do. And so if he is really, our shepherd, um, then we have to trust that 
that he means it when he says hey, he wants us to, to pray to him honestly and openly. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That's that's powerful stuff. Um, and it's it's uh, it's just you know it's just crazy to think about just the emotions and and some of the raw just emotional not only in the Psalms but you know in Job just some of those raw emotions you see and it's like man they're just visceral they just kind of jump out at you off the page um and we kind of live in a world where we try to like stay away from that kind of stuff you know at least at least i feel like i do and just in my circle and in my culture and and jeff you pointed at some of that stuff but just a reminder you know in some of these passages of really what it means to be a human being you know some of that stuff's involved um and i I believe in reverence you know i believe that we need to pray reverently and i'm not trying to dismiss that i just think that reverence does not necessitate me ignoring how i really feel in a moment that i can be reverent and approach the throne with boldness mm. you know because he's allowed me to be there he's adopted me and so yeah it's i i do think you can go too far you know I mean, does does Job go too far? You know, I think, you know, I don't know where that line is. I think, um, <laughs> I think there has to be, a, there is a, a line of reverence. But um, if 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 I'm allowed to pray at least with half the emotion that some of these psalms do are praying with, then then I'm fine right now. I haven't crossed it yet. Yeah, for sure. Chris, did you have something to say? I just I appreciated you opening up with us and telling us that story. Um, I'm sure that was very difficult for you to experience, but I'm thankful for um, your testimony to the power of prayer and how um, we can express our emotions to God in prayer. Because I think that is something that that we need to know, you know, because God does know what we're thinking. You know, He knows um, our anxieties, He knows our fears, He knows our angers. Um, so why not share it with him? I mean, he wants us to cast our care and our anxieties on him. And that means casting it on him. That means telling him what we're thinking, what we're experiencing. So I think it's super important that we actually try to to do that, um, no matter how uh, emotional we're feeling. And of course, recognizing that we're talking to the creator, but like he is our God who wants to, to know and to hear from us and, and for us to tell him what we're what we're what we're feeling, which is what he already knows. Yeah. You know, and I, um, I still have no idea how to pray. Um, but I think that's why the Psalms exist. You know, they, they're there to teach me how to pray. It reminds me a lot of when, uh, when you're feeling bad or maybe you're mad about something and and you write it all down as a way of venting and it makes you feel a lot better. I imagine prayer can work as a very similar avenue except for you're at the throne of god you're with god while you're doing it and he's feeling with you um just letting him know how you feel i think that's uh, extremely biblical as we've already discussed and it's something we need to hear more of today that it's okay to do that yeah for sure i definitely need to uh to do more of that myself um so so this book by Wright, let's just try to do almost like a closing, like big picture sort of thing. Uh, so overall, it seems like you would recommend it. 
but we're going to ask the question anyway. Uh, you know, so would you recommend it and why? And then kind of a follow-up question on that. And then Cole and Chris can add whatever they want to add. Um, how does this change either your outlook or your practice or whatever um, as a Christian in your context? And then maybe even as, you know, a minister as well or a student or a father or a husband or, or whatever else you kind of want to add there. And let me go ahead and add this to not only would you recommend it, but who would you recommend it to if you would recommend it? So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add another. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, of course I'd recommend it. I think that's come out in my uh, summary. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think you could probably finish reading the book in a quicker time than I summarized it. Uh, <laughs> Because it really, it's it's brief, and I don't want to call that a weakness, because that's the whole point of it. So it's not really a weakness, but um, I don't. I wouldn't say that I, I necessarily learned anything new reading this. It just worded it in a way that made sense. That was very refreshing, and so you know, it connected a lot of dots. But this is if, to answer who I'd recommend this to. If someone doesn't feel like, if they feel like they're they're studying about they're intimidated by the Old Testament, you know I don't know if I don't understand all that stuff. This is a great place to start because it just like like I've been saying unlocks the sections and allows you to see what they're all about and you know he he goes into these summaries as he's talking about, for instance, the chapter on David. He he uses some space to talk about. Okay, here's Tabernacle, here's the wilderness, you know, and just kind of rehearse that story. So you you walk away with it feeling like, okay, I got a bird's eye view of what the Old Testament's about. And and maybe that would empower the one who was formerly afraid of the Old Testament to say, Okay, I have a big picture now, I can I can read it for myself and see how it all unfolds. Um, so I, it was excellently written. He's just a great writer. The way he puts things into words, you know, is, is great. Um, it's, it's easy to read. It really is. He doesn't, he doesn't use a lot of, you know, theological jargon. I mean, he uses some, but he doesn't use it a lot. You, you, anyone can pick this up, in my opinion. And one of the greatest strengths is that it just really focuses on just the narrative, the story, the mission of God, which is what writes all about from the things I've read of of him, especially what I've read of mission, the mission of God is this missional hermeneutic that when you understand it's not just a story, but it's a story where God's the main character from beginning to end where he's up to something. Um, he's, he's reclaiming what was lost and what was fractured by sin. Um, it really, to go to the practical side of your question, um, it just changes the way I view my role in all of this, that I'm functioning as part of something bigger it humbles me because it makes me realize that, you know, salvation is not all about me. Yes, God loved me. I believe that, you know, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. But uh, that's not what the Bible is all about. It's not all about Jeff. It's about God and what he's doing. And that God's love is what sent his son for me. But the origin and the genesis is God, uh, not myself. You know, it, it's... <clears throat> He does discuss a few things and just sort of assumes a few things where if you've never heard it, you may have question marks. And so, um, for instance, he talks a lot about <clears throat> new creation. He says that from chapter one all the way through the end. 
um, he doesn't really he doesn't have space and he chooses not to use the space to address counterclaims to you know um, the the future you know of, of course he's not in the New Testament so he's not going to talk about some of the, the key ones we think about as far as John 14 second Peter 3 things like that but doesn't talk about you know even some of the um, apocalyptic imagery and the prophets when they're talking about the heavens rolling up rolling up like a scroll and the fire and things like that um, and so this wouldn't necessarily address those difficult passages but it does in my mind paint a good picture of what's going on from beginning to end and allow you to see uh, a big picture narrative of what God is what God is doing and so um, so I so the, the the first thing I'd say is yeah it's the thing I take away is you know there's a story going on and that the Old Testament matters you know the Old Testament is important you know I, I I'm in the in a new covenant with with Christ I understand that but that stems out of what God has already done um, through, you know, from creation, through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through, you know, everyone in line. The I'll conclude with how he concluded. I think this is probably his last sentence. I wrote it down. I think this is his last sentence on page 163. He says, for us, the more we get to know the scriptures of the Old Testament, the closer we will come to the mind and heart of Jesus himself. So if I am a Jesus follower... Um, and I am a disciple of Christ, then I'm going to care about what Jesus cared about. And that's the story of God. Amen. Awesome. Awesome job, Jeff. We really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, breaking down that book for us. I like I, I feel like I learned so much and simultaneously feel bad because now I feel like I don't even have to read it. Like, I feel like I've read it. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was about to say. I've I mean? read this book now. Yeah. No, I see. Like, I want to read it now. That's interesting. Yeah, see, so you want to read it? Okay. Um, yeah, but really, really fantastic. Really fantastic. We really do appreciate it, especially in the middle of getting ready for comps and everything else. We appreciate you coming on the show. And um, if you're ever in this Springfield, Tennessee area, check out Jeff, his work up there at the Cooperstown. Uh, Church of Christ. I think you release your sermons on SoundCloud too, right? If people want to look you up and listen to some of your stuff. I do, yeah. I upload on SoundCloud and then share it through our our Facebook page. One day we'll we'll be fancy enough to have a camera, but right now it's just the audio. Um, that might be a blessing. I don't know, but yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, awesome. So if you want to hear some more stuff from Jeff, check that out or uh, quick Google search. I'm sure he's on the standard social media. Apparati. Um, but we appreciate you coming on the show, man. Appreciate you sharing that with us. And uh, we thank you for your time and uh, for your friendship and, and being a brother for us. Hey, I enjoyed it. God bless all of you.